Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, the Brooklyn Historical Society visits, and we get down with the sickness. Ooh, ah, 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 ah. This exhibition was inspired by a series of diseases that shaped our news. We started doing research back during the Ebola crisis. The research continued during the Zika crisis. And now, as the exhibition opened, we are thinking about this Brooklyn-based measles crisis. And then our favorite Brooklyn zaddy, Walt Whitman, turns 200. We talk poetry and beards with the Brooklyn Public Library. He was sort of challenging, I think, the reader, not only with like his image there, but also with the poetry that you found inside the book. It was, it's, it's, it's really attractive. I, I agree with you. You've heard of the Great Depression and the Great Migration, but have you heard of the Great Dying? The Great Dying in the Americas is the term used to describe the decimation of indigenous populations post-1492. And it's an example not only of historians' nimble way with words, but also of how disease shapes human culture. But traditionally, the study of history hasn't focused much on diseases, partly because they're terrifying and museum visitors would much rather see a show on shoes throughout the ages, and partly because they don't gel with our own sense of human agency. We like to think that things happen because we did good things or because we did bad things, but in fact, history often happens because lots of people got smallpox. Additionally, our historical forebears weren't like super great at scientific record keeping. So when you read primary sources, they're often like, why'd they die? Too much of that miasma or the planets were out of tune. Here to help us make sense of that miasma is Julie Golia, the Vice President for Curatorial Affairs and Collections at the Brooklyn Historical Society. They're hosting an exhibit called Taking Care of Brooklyn, which takes a look at our borough through the microscopic lens of communicable disease. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mackenzie. So tell me a little bit about the show. What can people expect when they go to visit it? Well, we really thought a lot about 400 years of Brooklyn history and what some of the regular currents were that shaped people's lives. And you really can't get away from the fact that disease, experiences of sickness and health have played a fundamental role in Brooklynites' lives. And what's really interesting about Brooklyn is that it is a crucible for so many of the forces that actually shape health. Normally when we think about health, we think about germs, biology, disease, and those things are important, but equally as important are the social forces of our lives, where we live what our housing is like, whether we have access to clean water or healthy food, the kinds of discriminatory practices that exist in our laws and in our day-to-day life. All of these things may not sound like they're about health, but they absolutely are, and they shaped the health experiences of generations of Brooklynites. So you're looking at Brooklyn over the last 400 years. Are there different sections? Do you divide it up by century, by types of disease? So I think one thing we do really well at Brooklyn Historical Society is we tell stories. And rather than give you a march through time, starting in one year and ending at the end, we wanted to tell stories about people, about Brooklynites. And I think especially about ordinary Brooklynites. And so rather than focus on specific diseases or specific eras, we found people, activists, children and adults, doctors, women and men, doulas and midwives, people who can allow us to open up these themes of the way that health has changed and the way the historical concept of care has changed over time. Not just what care is, but who deserves it and in what ways it's been denied to people. Maybe you can tell me the story of one of these individuals um, that you think maybe sheds new light on the way that we look at health or disease in Brooklyn of times gone by. 
One of the most powerful and disturbing stories in the exhibition is about a two-year-old girl named Celeste Felder. Celeste lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant in the mid-20th century. Her father lived there with her and her three brothers and sisters, and she began to get mysteriously ill and agonizingly ill. She would cry out. She wouldn't eat food. And basically, Celeste had lead poisoning that she had gotten from the paint in her house. She was brought by her father to five different hospitals. And this is an African-American family. And they were basically dismissed, um, misdiagnosed. They were told to just bring her home. He insisted on her being checked into hospitals, and he was, in some cases, refused. And when Celeste was finally diagnosed with lead poisoning, she began treatment, and two hours later, she had died. Wow. And to me, this encompasses the idea of the social forces of health and the way that medical racism operates. Um, people like to think about these kinds of discriminatory practices or experiences to be in the past, and they very much shape our health well into the 20th century and into today. So the exhibit is not just about communicable diseases. It's about health care more broadly Correct. and access to health care. Correct. And that is, I mean, that's the, I think the crux of it is that even our notions of what diseases are most impactful on our lives has, have changed. And so if you're a Brooklynite in the beginning of the 19th century, you are scared of cholera and you are scared of yellow fever, these communicable diseases that rage, especially in the summertime, that wipe people out and then get quiet again. These are the public health issues of our time. Let's jump forward to today. What are some of the killers of Brooklynites today? Heart disease, diabetes, stroke, violence, birth equity. These are very different kinds of health issues, right? And so while a very important contagious diseases still shape our lives today, we also have to look more broadly at the inequities that shape our lives and define who is healthy and who has access to the things that can foster health. Contagious diseases of yore have recently come back into the news because of the measles outbreak um, in Williamsburg and surrounding areas. Do you touch on that at all, or is that sort of too contemporary? Nothing is too contemporary. In fact, in some ways, this exhibition was inspired by a series of diseases that shaped our news. We started doing research back during the Ebola crisis. The research continued during the Zika crisis. And now, as the exhibition opened, we are thinking about this Brooklyn-based measles crisis. One of the things that is really remarkable about Brooklyn is how many firsts took place here. And in many ways, we discovered that the origins of a national anti-vaccination movement started here in Brooklyn, not in the 21st century, not even in the 20th century, but in 1890s Brooklyn. Wow, what a dubious claim to fame. Yes, it's a very, I mean, it really, it, that's exactly right. And even more interesting, the, the ideas that were being circulated about vaccinations at the time, that they represented um, nefarious and profit-seeking motives of the pharmaceutical industry, that they were impure, that they had a particularly dangerous effect on children. These ideas got their start amongst a smallpox outbreak in 1892 to 1894. And it's really remarkable that without realizing it, those arguments have carried up into today and continue to shape the arguments around vaccination. And very much our story is about both information and misinformation and how dangerous misinformation can be. And why do you think it is important to tell this sort of wide-ranging story about disease and healthcare in Brooklyn specifically? 
Brooklyn has unbelievable, incomparable population density, especially in the 19th and 20th century. Brooklyn is unbelievably diverse, and its population is always changing. Brooklyn has and has been for much of its history an industrial capital and given way to so many industrial diseases that have shaped not only the people who work in factories, but the people who live around factories. So it is really a ground zero for the issues that shape public health and the ideas that have been developed here and then changed over time about how the government and how people and how activists should manage the issues of public health, many of those ideas originate here in our borough. One of our producers just told me that Bay Ridge used to actually be called Yellow Hook, but they had to change the name because of negative associations with yellow fever. I mean, of course, that's a perfect example of the way that people's understanding of names and information and notions of fear and the spread of fear really shape our our experiences of health and our perceived experiences of health. One story that we tell is about a man named Gabriel Furman. Furman was born in 1800 and he died in 1854. And now this is a remarkable lifespan because when he was born, Brooklyn was a sleepy little agricultural village of a couple thousand people. And when he died, Brooklyn was on its way to becoming the third largest city in the country. Imagine seeing that over the course of your life. Something else that Furman saw was the arrival of cholera in Brooklyn in 1832. And he, like so many other people, became panicked by this. And he wrote about it extensively in his journals. We actually have 13 of his journals in our archives at Brooklyn Historical Society. Eventually, Furman learned the news, which is not factual, that opium might be a preventative for cholera. And he began taking opium quite a bit. And lo and behold, Gabriel Furman had a raging opioid addiction Mm -hmm. soon after this. He basically loses all of his money and has to sell off his, you know, his family house, his library, and dies penniless and anonymous in a hospital in Brooklyn. He never got cholera, but his life was certainly shaped by the fear and the specter of cholera. So I think when we think about the history of disease, we also have to think about the ideas of disease and how they've shaped the movement of people, the fear that can be spread, and again, the question of who receives and who doesn't receive resources and education. We did an episode about death. We had a death doula on the show. We had somebody Mm. on who has a podcast about death. Mm. And we talked about how far we are in contemporary society from death and dying. And I imagine in the 19th century, even in the early 20th century, um, disease and death was around all the time. That maybe a sibling of yours or a child of yours had died. uh, That you were much closer to it. How do you think this separation in modern day from diseases, from fatal diseases, how do you think that's shaped the way that we think about health and death? Well, you know, I have two thoughts to that very interesting observation. And the first thought is that there is a class aspect of this that I think is really important to point out. And so I think about, for example, the issue of heart disease and diabetes, which is rampant in the poorer socioeconomic neighborhoods and particularly among people of color. It actually takes, in poor neighborhoods in Brooklyn, it takes three times as long to get to a grocery store that sells healthful food than it does to somebody living in you know, Brooklyn Heights or Fort Greene or something like that. And so in some ways, I think those stories of death are actually hidden in a way from people with more means and more privilege. And I think that's actually one of the heartbreaking things of the modern era is that, of course, disease ha- hasn't gone away, but its impact has been obscured in some ways by inc- increasing 
class tensions. Right. And that in many cases, I think that the diseases that were sort of great equalizers in the 19th century, these communicable, terrible diseases that hit poor people, hit rich people That's equally. Right. Now we're looking at diseases that you mentioned are more um, systemic and, and that right. impact people from lower economic And I mean, I think that is my that was my second thought, which is that when you get cholera, you go fast and it is not pretty. Now, it is, of course, not pretty when you die of heart disease either. But the idea of a long-term chronic disease has so much less visibility than a sweeping outbreak that ravages Brooklyn, you know, over the course of a summer and then quiets down in September. The idea of having smallpox, of having these marks all over your face, looks very different than many of the major issues that are shaping Brooklynites' experiences today. So this from the like the sort of the reactive nature of an epidemic society to the sort of obscuring nature of disease in a chronic society, I think is one of the most sort of pressing long-term issues that we look at when we when we look at this sort of issue over time. Does the exhibition tackle HIV AIDS and the epidemic in the 80s and 90s? And how did that impact Brooklyn specifically? That's a great question. One of the things that I am so proud of about this exhibition is that it really makes you look at the history of health and certain diseases differently when Brooklyn is brought into the mix. And so I think a lot of the mainstream understanding of the history of HIV focuses on Manhattan. It focuses on Greenwich Village. It focuses on the experiences of largely male gay New Yorkers at the time, so much so that, of course, before it was called AIDS, AIDS was often called GRID, which was gay-related immunodeficiency. Even the placing of that name on this obscures the fact that so many other people can and did get contract HIV. Now, when we look at the story of Brooklyn, it's actually a really different story. The story of AIDS in Brooklyn is has everything to do with the unbelievable drug problem that faced Brooklyn in the 1980s and 1990s. The fact that actually many women were um, contracting HIV because it wasn't explained to people until well into the 80s that this was a disease that had a particular risk for women, especially people whose partners were intravenous drug users. It shaped children's lives. It shaped an incredibly diverse group of people's lives in the way that I think our mainstream story doesn't always tell. We were lucky enough to do a project at Brooklyn Historical Society in 1992 called AIDS Brooklyn that connected about collected about 20 oral histories of Brooklynites who were people with AIDS or who were people affected by AIDS. And it truly gives voice to the diversity of the experience of AIDS in its early years. And we, we featured many of those oral histories in the exhibition. They can also be found online at our website, brooklynhistory.org. So the show is up for a long time, a couple of years, in fact. Talk to me about some of the outreach and public programming and events that you're doing around it. We've been working with really wonderful partners and contributors to this. For example, we wanted to end the show by thinking not just about the health issues that shape Brooklynites today, but the people who are doing things about it. And so we featured groups like East New York Farms. We featured Make, Make the Road New York, Ancient Song Doula Services, Save Our Streets Brooklyn, and a number of other organizations who are working on these issues of health equity on the ground. And so it was so exciting to meet with them and partner with them and then to plan future programming in the next years to come where we have public programs that feature the remarkable work that they do here in Brooklyn. But you're right, it will be up for three years at our Pierpont location and we're excited for people to come back and come back again because there's so many stories to learn from it.
The show is called Taking Care of Brooklyn. It is up now and for the next three years, as you mentioned. Um, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The beard is a great sanitary protection to the throat. For purposes of health, it should always be worn just as much as the hair of the head should be. Think what would be the result if the hair of the head should be carefully scraped off three or four times a week with a razor. Those are the words of Walt Whitman, Brooklyn's most prominent mask-for-mask poet. This year we celebrate his 200th birthday, but Whitman's Brooklyn is not too far from contemporary Brooklyn. Facial hair is in, the fairies are running again, and Brooklyn of Ample Hills ice cream can be yours if you're willing to wait in line. Today, ever so many hundred years hence, we are still enjoying the sunset, the pouring in of the flood tide, the falling back to the sea of the ebb tide. The Brooklyn Public Library is celebrating this bicentennial with a Whitman sampler of public events, including a beard and mustache competition that was held last week in Fort Greene Park. To tell us more about the event and Whitman's relationship to Brooklyn is the BPL's chief librarian, Nick Higgins. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, I must ask you a question. Uh, What did Whitman's (laughs) facial hair look like? Uh, Whitman's facial hair toward the end of his life was very much like a uh, sort of like an old benevolent Santa Claus type of beard. He just sort of let it all hang out uh, toward the end. Um, in his early days, the frontispiece of the original uh, Leaves of Grass in 18, 1855, it looked more sort of like a like a Williamsburg kind of like mostly close crop beard, uh, more fashionable and more more sort of in check. He's uh, so handsome in that photo. It's such a thirst trap. He's like got one hand akimbo and his beard's looking all tight and he's like sort of glaring down uh, at the reader. Listen, he's pretty sexy in that photograph. Absolutely. I mean, that, uh, it, it, he, um, he definitely had a posture, a pose. He was sort of challenging, I think, the reader, not only with like his image there, but also with the poetry that you found inside the book. It was, it's, it's, it's really attractive. I, I agree with you. So he was born 200 years ago. Yeah. How is the Brooklyn Public Library celebrating this event? In a number of ways, like we're sort of like winding down right now, but we had a um, a Whitman uh, weekend where we invited a lot of poets and writers and critics to come in and talk about the cultural legacy of Walt Whitman, uh, Lisa Grass in particular. Uh, we had some people coming in to talk about the cultural relevant relevancy of of Leaves of Grass in 2019 America. Um, we had a live reading of uh, public reading of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry across all of our Brooklyn Public Library sites, all 59 of them, on Whitman's birthday at 4 p.m. on uh, May 31st. And we had folks from the community, different poets, writers, local elected officials come in and, and read this beautiful Brooklyn-based poem into the air. And, of course, the beard and mustache competition. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a fun button on the end of celebration. So let's talk a little bit about it. Yeah. You had uh, several different categories sure. for competitors to enter. There was um, Leaves of Grass, which was Best Natural Beard. Barbaric Yop, Best Natural Mustache. Uh, you also had categories for kids, for teens, for fake beards. Yeah. Um, tell me how many people participated 
and you were there. Tell me yeah. maybe your favorite of the bunch. Uh, so there were about um, five or six people per category, which is a good size for for the show. Um, it, it, I don't know if you believe this or not, but the library has never put on a beer competition before. That is surprising. So it's a little bit surprising. So uh, we had some help from Coney Island USA, Adam uh, Adam Realman from Coney Island USA, who does his own beer competitions every year, uh, came in to help produce the event. Yeah, I mean, my favorite um, actually was this uh, this gentleman in the park who was a personal trainer who was just running up and down the monument stairs uh, while we were setting up the beard competition, and uh, we encouraged him. He had a really nice sort of like longer, longish beard, and um, we encouraged him to join in the competition, and he he did just by 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 chance of him being there, and he put on a great show. He um, sort of like. Yeah, strutted in front of the judges. He made a real show for the crowd. His personality was great. He had a good time with it. And that was sort of like the point of this whole thing was just to have fun and show the irreverent side of Walt Whitman poetry in Brooklyn. Um, the gentleman who won the Good Gray Poet Best in Show had a very impressive yeah. sort of Whitman-esque beard. What's his story? Uh, his story, that's Mr. Blake. He's a, he's an artist. Um, he uh, shows his stuff in lots of galleries. He did this one performance piece in 2009 called The Gorge, where he set up in a chair and he had someone come uh, from, from behind him and uh, feed him uh, food. Uh, th- you can all check this out on online, but he's um, he's a LGBT activist. Um, he came in, he sort of stumbled upon the competition and decided to to register. And his beard is magnificent. It actually, it's a, it's a beautiful white full beard um, that sort of like comes out over his very impressive sort of like build. And he had a great time with it as well. And in his acceptance speech, he made sure to note that Whitman was a queer poet. And this was on the day of the Brooklyn Pride Parade. And he was so elated to uh, be receiving this uh, prize on on, on Pride Day. What a great confluence of events. I wondered if he was maybe a Whitman impersonator, which I don't imagine would be a very lucrative uh, (laughs) profession. But it was a very impressive Whitman-esque beard. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also had um, beards not were not just for men. There were some women who were both competing and judging as well, correct? We wanted to make this show all genders, all all ages. Um, I think Whitman would have really found that exciting to, to have everyone be able to participate in a birthday celebration of, of him in this really irreverent, sort of fun, fun celebratory way. So talk to me a little bit about Whitman's relationship to Brooklyn. Obviously, yeah. we mentioned um, some of the poems in which he talks about Brooklyn, where he lived for many years. Why is it so significant to be celebrating the 200-year anniversary of his birth here in Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean Whitman. Uh, Whitman was born in Long Island, but we're gonna we're gonna uh, forget about that. So a yeah, lot of good we, people were. A lot of people. A lot of good people were born in Long Island, um, but we're gonna claim Brooklyn. Uh, we're gonna claim Whitman as our as our Brooklyn guy, as our Brooklyn poet. Uh, he lived here. He built houses with his family. His his, his father. Um, he apprenticed at a lot of newspapers here. He was a newspaper man himself. Uh, he really hustled. He, um, you know, he made it in this emerging city, this bustling city. He fell in love with the urban landscape, and he was a poet. And he self-published uh, his revolutionary Leaves of Grass in 1855 out of a small printing shop, the Rome Brothers Printing Shop on the corner of Cranberry and, and Fulton, uh, not too far from here. 
um, and churned out 700 copies of this work that no one really ever read, like the first edition. But most people found it to be really controversial. Um, uh, it was described as a farrago of rubbish. Um, uh, people thought it should be uh, tossed into the fire. But this happens oftentimes when work comes out that uh, people just aren't ready for. And he was certainly ahead of his time. And it was born in Brooklyn. It came out of Brooklyn. And the way that he did it was so Brooklyn. Uh, he just did it by himself. He set the type himself largely. Um, he advertised for it. He sold it. He hustled. And uh, he believed in it uh, through and through. So you're the chief librarian of the Brooklyn Public Library, which seems yeah. like a really fun job. <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> um, talk to me about the elements of your job that aren't just like down in the stacks, like working with books. How do you bring the public library out into the community and invite the community into the library as well. Yeah, I mean, lots of things. Listen, I mean, we are of the community. We are Brooklyn. We have 59 libraries spread across this great borough. We are the cultural and educational anchors of a lot of our communities. We're an open space. Oftentimes, like bringing the the community, like bringing the library to the community is very important to us, and we listen to the community about like what kinds of programs and services that we have in each each neighborhood. So I think really what we try to do is listen to the community, find out what they want, and do honor by the neighborhoods where we're working because we are part of those neighborhoods. We want to reflect the character and the spirit of those neighborhoods. So each neighborhood library is distinct and reflective of the communities that they belong to. So in some libraries, you're going to have Saturday story times. And in other libraries, you're going to have Saturday story times in Bengali or Russian or, or Chinese or, or Spanish, depending on what the community needs. Um, some communities want adult literacy programs, uh, and we offer those. Um, we offer multilingual legal services uh, for free in some of our branches. And we also put up programs for individuals and, and families who are impacted by the justice system. It, it really is a library that's driven by the needs of the community. And when we're doing really well, not only do we respond to those community needs, but we're also anticipating them. And uh, I think that Brooklyn Public Library, better than a lot of other library systems, can do that because a lot of the people who work in our libraries come from the neighborhoods uh, that, that we serve. Um, and we're, we're embedded. We're, we're Brooklynites. You mentioned, of course, that Walt Whitman is gay or was gay. Yeah. Uh, there's a story that we've been tracking here at Woman 2 bk about Drag Queen Story Hour. Yeah. And there was a kerfuffle recently, I believe out in South Brooklyn. Um, a community was saying that they didn't want a drag queen to come into their public library right. and read a story that was about um, inclusivity and gender mm -hmm. to young children. What do you think Walt Whitman would have to say about that? Walt Whitman would be at the Drag Queen Story Hour, I think. <laughs> um, but you're right. There was some pushback on Drag Queen Story Hour. And across the country, you'll notice that Drag Queen Story Hour in public libraries are sort of like the the flashpoint in sort of what, what libraries, public libraries are, are, are all about. It's about responding to and reflecting and respecting the broad spectrum of human experience, celebrating difference, celebrating diversity, celebrating inclusion and access. You know, not everyone is going to, to like it, but what's great about a public library is that we have something on the shelves and in our programming that people can choose to accept or not. 
in a way, we have something in the library to offend everyone. <laughs> it's a great thing about libraries that they don't force you to read everything in the library. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty yeah. cool. So I, I do think that Walt Whitman would have uh, come out for the protest in uh, in this one particular library where we had this kerfuffle, as you say, and would have supported the the idea that uh, we are celebrating inclusion and diversity and uh, and acceptance in um, in our communities. Well, maybe I'll wrap up, Nick, by um, noting that you don't seem to have any facial hair. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm I just worried. Maybe we talked a little bit at the beginning about how Whitman was very concerned about people who didn't have facial hair because of the sanitary yeah. protection afforded by a beard. This is true. Yeah. Have you discovered, have you found that not having a beard has, are you more prone to illness? Has this negatively impacted your health at all? I, I think, actually, I think it has. I think I sleep uh, too late on the weekends and probably don't take out the trash as often as mm-hmm. I should. Uh, I just don't have the energy for it, the fortitude. And uh, I think I'm going to take Walt Whitman's advice and, and, and do my best to grow um, maybe that, that cute hipster beard that he had in the frontispiece of sure. Lisa Grass 1855. Grow a beard, young man. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you your time. Yeah, thank you so much. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to sound a barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. Or just review One One Two Can iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 